Hey, welcome to episode number 58 of More Than Bread. I'm Dan, your host for this podcast, host, Bible reader, and scripture explainer. In this episode, we're focusing on John 13. John 13 contains, for me, at least one of the most powerful moments in the life of Jesus. In some ways, it's even more revealing of his character and his heart and his power than even the cross and the empty tomb. This is something he he, he chooses to do. It reveals who he is. Too often we gloss over, pass it by without barely a glance. Maybe, maybe because it's become a, a cliche, a, a, a saying. It, it, it takes place on Thursday, the day before Christ goes to the cross. That evening, Jesus gathered with his closest friends, his inner core, the 12 disciples, and they celebrate what we now call communion. Jesus uses this moment to plant a seed in, in the hearts and the minds of his followers about, about the importance of the cross and the importance of being a servant and, and even more, the importance of love. The, the title of this podcast, More Than Bread, is so appropriate for John 13, because in John 13, we get this living example and illustration of the secret of greatness, the essence of glory, the path to life. And if we could get John 13 to saturate our souls, I'm, I'm telling you, greatness of life and glory of soul would follow more than bread, more than stuff. Uh, let me tell you a, a story to kind of set the scene. This is a story I always think of when I think of John 13. Leon, Joseph, and Clyde were three men with the same problem. They all thought they were God. <laughs> Some of you ladies are thinking, I know a guy like that. But we're not just talking about a touch of narcissism or or just being a little bit too full of themselves. Leon, Joseph, and Clyde were three long-term patients at a psychiatric hospital in Ypsilanti, Michigan. All of them were diagnosed with psychotic delusional disorder. Each one insisted that he was the reincarnation of, of Christ. <laughs> Each one contended to be the central figure around whom the whole world revolved, three little messiahs. Psychologist Milton Rokich wrote a book about his attempts to help these men come to grips with the truth about themselves. The book is called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. He spent two years working with the men, but change, my goodness, Change comes hard when we cling to our place at the center of the world. With little to lose, Rokich decided to try an experiment. He put the three men to, into one small group. And for two years, these three would-be messiahs slept in the same room. They worked together at the same job, ate meals together at the same table, met daily for group discussions. Rokich wanted to see if three delusional messiahs coming face-to-face with each other would cause him to see the truth about who they were. It's kind of a a messianic 12-step recovery group, I guess. The experiment led to some interesting conversations. One of the men would claim, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm on a mission. I was sent here to save the earth. How do you know? Rokich would ask. God told me. And one of the other patients would quickly counter, I never told you any such thing. They had a Messiah complex. They thought they were God. They measured their greatness and their glory by the extent to which the world revolved around them. John 13 gives us a whole new way of measuring greatness and glory. Listen as I read John 13 from the New Living Translation. John 13, verse 1. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. And he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. And some of your translation says now he would show them the full extent of his love. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew 
that the Father had given him authority over everything, that he had come from God and would return to God. So, so Jesus now has this this clarity about what is going on in his life, who he is, and what his mission, what his task is. He knows. He knows where he's come from. He knows where he's headed. He knows what he's about to do. Verse 4. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drawing drawing them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And, and you know, when we look at it in, in, the, in the text here, it seems like it's just kind of this innocent question. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? When in reality, the, the Greek, when you study the Greek language, you understand that, that this is more of a, oh my, no, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied to Peter, verse 7, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter said, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. We get this massive turn in Peter's attitude. He wants to belong to Jesus. And so he says in verse 9, then wash my hands, Simon Peter exclaimed. Wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Wash all of me. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Let me say that again. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Not not God will bless you for knowing them. (laughs) Not God will bless you for reading the story. Not God will bless you for thinking about them, but God will bless you for doing them. Verse 18, I'm not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I've chosen, but this fulfills the scripture that says the one who eats my food is turned against me. I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens, you will believe that I am the Messiah. I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Now, Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other, wondering whom he could mean. The disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who is he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, it is, it is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, The time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory, and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. This is a principle. 
my words. This is a principle that when we give away the glory that God gives us, God fills our hands with more. When he knows that we can trust him with his glory. A.W. Tozier used to pray a prayer. I've prayed it so many times. It's it's kind of one of my core prayers. God, help me to become a man to whom you can entrust your glory. Jesus was a man, the Son of Man, the Son of God, but Jesus was a man to whom God could entrust his glory. Verse 33, dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you'll search for me, but you can't come where I'm going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should also love each other. Now, now before we go further, I, I want you to notice that this idea of loving each other, that's not the new part. This is not a new commandment. I mean, they knew, love God, love your neighbor, love each other, love, love, love. They, they knew that. Here's the newness of the commandment. I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you, you should love each other. The new standard, it's a new standard of love, just as I have loved you, love each other. And and in a day or so, the disciples are going to see how much Jesus loves them. In fact, he says in verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Not not what you know, not, not even what you give. Not not how holy you are and what standards you have, but your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you'll follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked. I'm ready to die for you. Oh, boy. (laughs) Here's where Peter kind of gets himself into trouble. Talk before he thinks, Peter. Look before he leaps, Peter. I'm ready to die for you, Peter says. Jesus answered, die for me. Verse 38, I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And in the coming episodes, we're going to see this, the the, the trans, transformation of this relationship between Peter and Jesus as Peter makes this declaration, and then we'll see what happens in the episodes to come. But for now, I, I want to focus on this first part, the, the washing of the feet. What, what does glory look like? Let me ask you that. How do you recognize it? We may have different pictures of greatness in different fields, LeBron in basketball, Bill Gates in, in business, Monet in art. There's leadership glory, great leaders like Vaclav Havel from Czechoslovakia. Well, one of my favorite topics is how God has created each one of us to do good works, that, that we are a masterpiece whom God is shaping with unique strengths that can lead to glory. But how do you measure glory? To what kind of greatness do you aspire? I want to be a great dad, a great husband. I want to be a leader of a movement that touches people so profoundly that whole cities are transformed. I want to go on glorious adventures and be involved in missions that matter. But is there a glory? Is there a greatness that supersedes all other categories? I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. He says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. There's something kind of blinding our eyes before we turn to the Lord. But when we turn to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, we're being transformed. We're being morphed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. That's that's a picture of greatness. I mean, if you could morph, if you could change, be transformed into the image of your choice, what would you choose? 
I mean, we're, we're a little bit hesitant to say we want to be like God, even to say we want to be like Jesus, even though that's really, in essence, our calling. But to be like God, I mean, isn't that what Adam and Eve got busted for, right? What would it be like to be like God? Omnipresence? And just think what you could do with omnipresence, being everywhere all the time. This is the secret wish of all soccer moms. If I could only be on three fields at the same time. Omniscience, all-knowing. If I could just download what God knows, I mean, that's even better than Google.com. Omnipotence, all-powerful. How many of us haven't wanted God's power sometime in our life? In fact, our prayer lives are loaded with requests for God's power. What would it be like to be like God? (laughs) Have the power of God. One day in college, I was driving through the parking lot, very much in a hurry, probably late for class, desperate for a parking spot. I saw someone walking towards their car, and so I followed them. And finally, they stopped, so I stopped, and I'm patiently waiting for them to leave. And as they left, they pulled in front of me, and before I could get around them, this little car came from out of nowhere and took my spot. I was mildly annoyed, <laughs> or, or or maybe a little bit furious, and I, I left looking for another spot probably praying for the power of God. I was nursing my anger, my fury, and I knew I shouldn't be feeling this way, but it just seemed like I couldn't help it. I I knew I had to do something. And so after I found my spot, I walked back to the car that had stolen my rightful space, and I knelt down beside the back of the car, (laughs) and I let the air out of both tires. I I know your, your respect for me has just gone down, but you know you've wanted to do it. I just did what you have wanted to do at some point in your life. But here's what I wonder. I wonder what I would have done if I I had had access to all the power of God. What does it mean that God wants us to become like him, that he's transforming us from glory to glory to become like him? It's obviously not about becoming all-present, all-powerful, or all-wise, In fact, when Jesus walked the earth, he was fully God and fully man. He was the glory of God in person. And yet he said that he had to leave the earth so that the Holy Spirit could come because he couldn't be with everyone all the time. In fact, in his lifetime, he didn't even make it beyond the small boundaries of his own country. And and when someone asked him for the schedule of the end of the world, what did he say? I don't know. Only the Father knows that. And not even power. He didn't even have free, while he was on the walking the face of the, he didn't even have free unlimited access to the power of God. In fact, one time he said, I can only do what I already see the Father doing. Without the Father, I can do nothing. See, in some ways, he was lacking in presence and lacking in power and lacking in knowledge, and yet he was fully God. And you say, I wonder if power and knowledge and even the ability to be everywhere all the time are more like a mantle that God wears, but not the core, not the very heart of who he is. And I just want us to see that core, the heart of all the glory of God, and perhaps the most significant revealing act of God in John 13. Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father, and he now showed his disciples the full extent of his love. It was time for supper, and the devil had already enticed Judas to carry out his plan to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God as returning to God. And so (laughs) he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash his disciples' feet. 
See, I think John wants us to know that this is a defining moment for Jesus. This is a culminating intersection of heaven and earth. Jesus has been given knowledge. He knew that he had come from and was returning to the Father. He knew about Judas. He knew that victory was at hand. He knew that the Father had given him all power, power that he could use in any way he chose. I believe that. No limits. What would you do if you were standing at the intersection of history, all the knowledge and all the power and all the purposes of God flowing through you and in you, power to be and power to choose and power to do whatever you wanted to do? What would you do? Here's Jesus in this climactic intersection of life, power and knowledge restored, ready to show his friends, his followers, the full extent of his love. All the power, all the love, all the purposes of God colliding in this moment in time. And what does Jesus do? He humbles himself like a nobody, a servant. He wraps a towel around his waist, picks up a basin and begins to wash feet. No limits. All the power of God at his disposal. Prime opportunity for greatness. And Jesus serves. And this is not just a hospitality inconvenience for Jesus. This is almost degrading. Think of the dirtiest job, the job you hate doing, never offered to do. Foot washing in that day, in that culture was such a lowly job that Jewish slaves were not even allowed to do it. In a few hours, Jesus will be star player, center stage in an event that will fulfill the deepest purposes of God and split history in two. In a few hours, he will be fulfilling his calling and turning history inside out while hanging on an old rugged cross. But for the moment, all power has been given to him. And so he's cleaning your toilet, wiping up your vomit, holding the hand of a senile old man who's lost his mind and will never even remember he was there. And and look around his table. James and John are still arguing over who gets top billing on the kingdom marquee. Peter, talk like big stuff, Peter. (laughs) But before morning, deny three times. How how many of them will be there for Jesus when he needs them? He's not even serving, he's even serving, excuse me, Judas. I mean, even those feet. And, And I don't know, I wonder what I might have done to them if I had had access to all the knowledge and all the power of God. In Philippians 2, Paul writes, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, fully God, fully servant. What if he didn't take the form of a servant to disguise the fact that he was God, but he took the form of a servant because that was the closest form on earth to the form of God. Jesus reveals the heart of of God, the God who's a servant. Because listen to me, money is not the essence of greatness. A large church is not the essence of greatness. Fame is not the essence of greatness. Health and long life is not even the essence of greatness. Servanthood is the essence of greatness. After he washed their feet, he put on his robe again and he said, down, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right. That's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed each other, your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow, not, not something to study. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Do as I have done to you. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them, not for studying them, not, not for reading about them, not for memorizing them, but for doing them. 
a few years ago, I was working on a sermon on servanthood. <laughs> it was it was Thursday evening, big sermon prep time for me. And at some point, I went to the bathroom, and someone in our family had used too much toilet paper. The toilet was plugged. Now, I didn't know this, honestly. In fairness to me, I didn't know this until after it came time for me to flush. And when I flushed, the water came up to the very top of the rim, but not over. <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll leave it alone. <laughs> Maybe it'll take care of itself. So I went back to work on my message on being a servant. <laughs> I've got my headphones on. I'm pondering self-denial and living for others and let the eye die. It's not about me. It's about being a servant. About 15 minutes later, I hear gagging. It's Lynn, my wife. She's in the bathroom trying to unplug the toilet. And it must have, I don't know, it must have been worse than I remembered it. I could hear her through my headphones. I kept thinking she'll stop gagging when she gets it fixed, but she wasn't getting it fixed very fast. And so, of course... I pulled my headphones back up and turned the music louder so that I couldn't hear because I hate toilets and I, and it wasn't really my fault. And if she needs me, she'll come and get me. And I'm doing something important. I'm studying servanthood. <laughs> I'm figuring out what to say about servanthood. 90 seconds later, my eldest daughter, Sarah, is standing there yelling at me, mom's gagging. Can you go help her unplug the toilet? I said, of course, I'll go help. I'm a servant. <laughs> This is one of those things that you won't get blessed for talking about. You won't find life just by studying it. Now that you know these things, God says, Jesus says, God will bless you for doing, doing, doing them. So much good stuff in John 13. Let me read it again from the message, paraphrase, and then I'll pray for us. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And having loved his dear companions, he continued to love them right to the end. It was supper time. The devil by now had Judas, son of Simon the Iscariot, firmly in his grip, all set for the betrayal. Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything, that he came from God and was on his way back to God. And so he got up from the supper table, set aside his robe, put on an apron, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples, drying them with his apron. When he got to Simon Peter, Peter said, Master, you wash my feet? Jesus answered, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but it will be clear enough to you later. Peter persisted, you're not going to wash my feet ever. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you can't be part of what I'm doing. Master, said Peter, not only my feet, then wash my hands, wash my head. Jesus said, if you've had a bath in the morning, you only need your feet washed now and you're clean from head to toe. My concern, you understand, is holiness, not hygiene. So now you're clean, but not every one of you. He knew who was betraying him, and that's why he said, not every one of you. After he had finished washing their feet, he took his robe, put it back on, and went back to his place at the table. And then he said, do you understand what I've done to you? You address me as teacher and master, and rightly so. That is what I am. So if I... The master and teacher washed your feet. You must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above his master. An employee doesn't give orders to the employer. If you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. I'm not including all of you in this. I know precisely whom I've selected so as not to interfere with the fulfillment of this scripture, the one who ate bread at my table will stab me in the back. I'm telling you all this ahead of time so that when it happens, you'll believe that I am who I say I am. Make sure you get this right. 
receiving someone I send is the same as receiving me, just as receiving me is the same as receiving the one who sent me. After he said these things, Jesus became visibly upset. And then he told them why. One of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked around at one another, wondering who on earth he was talking about. One of the disciples, the one Jesus loved dearly, was reclining against him, his head on his shoulder, and Peter motioned to him to ask who Jesus might be talking about. So being the closest, he said, Master, who? Jesus said, the one to whom I give this crust of bread after I've dipped it. Then he dipped the crust and gave it to Judas, son of Simon, the Iscariot. As soon as the bread was in his hand, Satan entered him. What you must do, said Jesus, do. Do it and get it over with. No one around the supper table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that since Judas was their treasurer, Jesus was telling him to buy what they needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Judas, with the piece of bread, left, and it was night. When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is seen for who he is, and God seen for who he is in him. The moment God is seen in him, God's glory will be on display. In glorifying him, he himself is glorified. Glory all around Children, I'm with you for only a short time longer. You're going to look high and low for me. But just as I told the Jews, I'm telling you where I go, you are not able to come. But let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way that I loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples when they see the love you have for each other. I have to read that again. Let me give you a new command. Love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples. This is how everyone will recognize. This is how everyone will recognize that you're my disciples, that you're my followers, that you are Jesus' apprentices when they see the love you have for each other. Do people see the love that you have for each other? Do people see the love you have for the church, for Christians? A forgiving love, a gracious love, a truthful love a convicting love, a sacrificing love? Do they see the love that you have for others? Simon Peter, verse 36, asked Jesus, where are you going? Jesus answered, you can't now follow me where I'm going. You'll follow later. Master, said Peter, why can't I follow now? I'll lay down my life for you. Really? You'll lay down your life for me? The truth is that before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Let me pray for us. Spirit of God, would you increase the capacity of our hearts so that we would love each other the way that Jesus loves us, self-sacrificing, gracious, full of grace and truth, that, that we would be willing to open our arms and our hands, that we would be hospitable, that we would be forgiving. Jesus, today there's so much division in your church. There's so many Christians who are not exhibiting anywhere near the love that you have for us. That love isn't being exhibited for others. I pray that you would increase our ability to love each other. I pray for every person who's been hurt by another Christian, that every person who's turned their back on you, Jesus, left the church because of of wounding offense, because of bitterness. I pray that you would pour your spirit out upon them. I pray that you would bring healing to their hearts. I pray that you would increase their capacity to love, that we would love each other the way that you love us. 
Jesus, thank you so much for the way that you love us. Not, not just then, not just on the cross, not just in the tomb, not just resurrection power let loose in the world, not just preparing the way for us to be adopted into the family of God and covered by the love of God, but the way that you continue to love us every day. May we do what you've done for us. May we be doers. May we serve others. May we wash feet. May we humble ourselves and do for others in the same way that you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.